Amen. Thank you so much to Sam and to all the musicians and singers this morning. What a blessed time of worship through song. Amen. What a blessed time. Well, go ahead and grab your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 9 is where we are this morning. Revelation chapter 9. And as you are turning there, many people have asked, uh, some in our church family and some who I've spoken to outside of our church family, when I tell them uh, that we are preaching through the book of Revelation, studying the book of Revelation, many people ask, why? What, what's the point of that book? Why was it written? Why does it matter? Specifically thinking that this book is for the future, so we might be dead by the time these events take place. Even if you hold uh, certain rapture positions, if you hold to a pre-trib rapture, a mid-trib rapture, or a pre-wrath rapture, by the time we get to Revelation chapter 9, we're out of here. Uh, only if you hold to a post-tribulation rapture are you still in these events, but most people would hold to those first three, and so we'd look at this and say, well, we're not even going to be here. Why does it matter? Uh, if you remember, Revelation chapter 1, verse 3 tells us there's a blessing for those who read this book, who hear this book, and who heed or keep or do the things that are written in this book. There are things in this book for us to hear and to do according to what we are reading. So my question is, as we read chapter 9 of Revelation, what on earth are we supposed to be doing? What are we supposed to believe? What are we supposed to be hearing? And what are we supposed to be doing based off of these verses in chapter 9. So that's my question to you. And I want to read this section together. We're going to read the whole chapter. And as we read it, I want you to be thinking that question. How would you answer? What are we supposed to do? What are we to take from these verses? And how are we to apply them to our lives? Revelation chapter 9, verse 1. John writes, Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven, which had fallen to the earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him, and he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke went up out of the pit, like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth, and power was given them. As the scorpions of the earth have power. They were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. And in those days, men will seek death and they will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. The appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle, and on their heads appeared to be crowns like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like the hair of women, and their teeth were like the teeth of lions. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots of many horses rushing to battle. 
They have tails like scorpions and stings, and in their tails is the power to hurt men for five months. And they have a, as a king over them, the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he has the name Apollyon. The first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still coming after these things. And the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, one saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. The number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. And this is how I saw in the vision the horses and those who sat on them. The riders had breastplates, the color of fire and hyacinth and the brimstone and the heads of the horses are like the heads of lions and out of their mouths proceed fire and smoke and brimstone. And a third of mankind was killed by these three plagues, by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which proceeded out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents and have heads and with them they do harm. The rest of the mankind who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. Father, Revelation chapter 9 causes us to pause and to stop in our tracks and, and ask the question, what is it that you have for us to learn today? We want to listen to what Revelation 1-3 says. We want to hear your word. We want to heed it. We want to do what it's telling us to do. And, and we come to this chapter and even some of the other ones that are going to follow, and we ask, what is it that you're telling us? What is it that you are teaching us? What is it that you want us to believe such that it would change how we live our lives? Father, your word is clear. It is knowable. Even these passages that seem incredibly challenging to interpret, they are knowable. And they're, they're clear in their application. So, Father, I pray that you would bless our time. Even as we read this chapter, we think, what is the blessing going to be? And Father, I pray that you would surprise us, that you would astound us with your mercy and your grace, that you would, you would speak to our hearts through your word and that you would change us, conform us into the image of Christ, even as we read and study these verses. Holy Spirit, as we pray every Sunday, Open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. We cannot see what we are supposed to see if you do not do that work of illuminating our understanding. So give us grace this morning. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Revelation chapter 9. We're just going to study the first part. I wanted to do the whole thing. You can see the whole thing is really talking about demonic activity. The whole uh, chapter, it's two trumpet blasts that contain two judgments that are just a, a whole lot of demonic activity. And so I wanted originally to study both of those sections, those two trumpets. We're just going to look at the first this morning and the next, uh, Lord willing, 
next uh, Lord's Day. But here this morning, for our purposes, we are going to study all the way down through verse 12. And in these verses, we are going to see four stunning realities that should affect our lives today. Four stunning realities that should affect our lives today. Starting in verse 1, we see that the fifth angel sounds this trumpet. We saw the first four trumpets last week. The fifth angel sounds his trumpet. And I saw, John writes, a star from heaven. Now, every time we've seen a star, we've seen that that's a literal star from the heavens coming down to earth. But this is a little bit different. Number one, John says, it had fallen to the earth. This is a very specific Greek tense. It's the perfect tense, which means it happened in the past, but you see its effects today. So this has already happened. John is not seeing the star falling. John sees that the star has already fallen and sees its effects on the earth today. This star receives the key to the bottomless pit as it was given to him. So this is why this is not a star, a physical star up in the sky next to all the planets. This is a, a person, a him, a personal pronoun, a masculine pronoun is given there. This isn't an it. This is a he, this is a him. Who is this he or him? Well, Revelation chapter 12 describes who this he is, this star falling out of heaven. And in Revelation 12, as we're going to get to, we're going to see that it's described, this, this he, this fallen star is described as a dragon. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12 describes the fall of this star. And Luke chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus explicitly speaks of the fall of this star. When Jesus says, I watched Satan fall from heaven like lightning. The first stunning, staggering reality that we need to hear this morning and believe, number one, is Satan is real. Satan is real. Nine different Old Testament books describe Satan and every single New Testament author discusses him gives detail about who he is and what he does. He's real. Satan is actually not his name. That's a title. Every time you see uh, Satan in the Bible, uh, it's, a, it's a title given to the devil, given to Lucifer, and it always has a definite article in front of it. The Satan, the adversary. He's working against you and he's working against me and he hates us and he hates God. Devil also is a title. Diabolos, two Greek words, dion balo, dia means through, balo means to throw. So to throw between or to throw through. The devil's main goal with you and with me is to divide us. He wants to cast something between us that will break us apart. Very interesting to note, in the Bible, the word satan is used to speak of you and me without a definite article. So it's not the satan, it's it's just Satan, and it's when we are being adversarial with one another. We can do the work of the devil with one another if we are each other's enemies and adversaries. The devil was thrown out of heaven as he stood against God in opposition to him because he desired to receive praise the way that God was receiving praise for creating the world for his glory and majesty. And so the devil was thrown out of heaven, and to this day, 
fights against God. He hates God and he hates you. By the way, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, you would think that you're on the devil's team, but you're not. The devil hates you. If you're a non-believer, if you're not a Christian, the devil hates you. He doesn't want you to be on his team because he loves you and he wants you to be a part of his program. He hates you. The reason why he hates you is you're made in the image of God. You have God's stamp on you. When the devil sees you, he sees a reminder of God and he hates God, so he hates you. If you're a Christian, Satan hates you for those reasons and so many more. Satan just pretty much hates everything. John sees Satan receiving a key. He sees that Satan is loose on earth, which is the way things have always been. Genesis chapter 3 tells us that since the fall of Satan to the earth, he's been loose on the earth, prowling like a, a roaring lion, seeking those whom he can devour. But there's new information here, and that is the fact that he's given a key. He's given a key to this bottomless pit. If you remember in chapter 1, Jesus holds the key to death and to Hades and to this abyss. No angel retains permanent possession of the key to the abyss, so God has to give the angel the key. My Bible says it was the key to the bottomless pit. Some of your translations might say abyss. Uh, abyss is really just a transliteration of the Greek word. Abyss, the A in front of it, is what we would call in Greek the alpha privative, which just negates whatever's behind it, right? Atheist, an atheist believes there's no God. So abyss means there's no bis, and bis just means depth or end or bottom. So abyss just means no bottom, no end. It just keeps on going, no depth to it. It just keeps on going forever. What is the abyss? What is the bottomless pit. Some say that it's actually hell. It might be. I think that it's probably more of a, of a prison. Maybe it's located in hell or maybe it's outside of hell, but it's a prison where demons, fallen angels, are locked up. Genesis 6 tells us that uh, the angels that were going around, those, uh, the angels that were uh, having uh, sexual relations with women were going outside of the domain that God had given them to go into. And so God throws them into an abyss, throws them into a prison, the word is used, a, a prison where they're locked up and detained so that they can't go back onto the earth. This abyss is the antithesis of the throne room of heaven. We've gone from the most beautiful, most glorious place to the most despicable, ugly, hated, darkened place of judgment. It's a terrible place. Remember Mark chapter 5, remember the the two demon-possessed men that show up at the Sea of Galilee right when Jesus gets off the boat, Jesus talks to them. Uh, what is your name? The demons say, we are legion, we are many. You remember what the demons say? Jesus says, you need to leave, you need to go. What do the demons say? They say, please do not send us into the abyss. They hate this place. Many people think that hell is a place where demons and angels and fallen angels and Satan are just super happy and they're partying because this is their domain. This is their, uh, you know, uh, residence. This, this is where they enjoy hanging out. It's not. The abyss is a place of judgment, of punishment. It seems like the Bible would teach us that demons have some sense of free reign until they go beyond what God allows them to do and then they're locked up. Jude chapter 6 explicitly says this. Angels who were not staying in their domain were locked up. 
I, I think about Job, right, when Satan said, basically, how far can I go? And God says, you can do this much damage to Job's family and no more. You can do this much damage and no more, this much damage and no more. If Satan went beyond that, or if the demons went beyond that, if they went beyond the perimeters that God gave, those parameters to give that trial, then they would have been locked into the abyss. So this is the bottomless pit, this, this abyss where demons have been locked up in prison. Verse 2, the devil, after being given this key, opens the pit. Smoke comes up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. We saw smoke rising in chapter 8. It was the smoke from the incense that was going up as prayers offered before the Lord in heaven. Now we see a different kind of smoke. We, we are moving from a holy, beautiful smoke to a hellish, disgusting smoke. And truly, as the idiom would say, where there is smoke, there is fire. There's the fire of judgment that is being contained in this abyss such that as it's opened up, you can see a picture of the judgment that's contained inside of this bottomless pit. Satan is real. He's a real angel, fallen angel. He's a real being. He's a created being, and he's real. It's very interesting. I, I remember several years ago, there was a, uh, a sweet woman who attended our church, and, and she, she told me, I, I noticed something interesting about this church. And I said, what is that? I think there's a lot of interesting things about this church. I'd like to know which, which you think you're seeing and, and interacting with. And she said, you don't talk about Satan a lot. I said, I don't really feel a need to. I'll talk about him when he's in the text, but he's not the theme of the Bible. And I don't think that we should overestimate his power. I think a lot of churches tend to overestimate his power. In reading these verses, I just want to make sure that we don't underestimate his power. He's very real. He's very real. He hates you. And in these verses, he's given the authority by God through this key. Remember, this key is the picture of authority. You can open or close doors. He's given authority to go and to open this pit and to release all of these imprisoned, incarcerated demons. And that's point number two. So number one, Satan is real. Number two, demons are real. Demons are real. This is verses three, really all the way down to verse 12. Out of the smoke come locusts upon the earth. Locusts. These are not literal locusts. These are not from the animal kingdom. You can just see, even in the description that we read earlier, there's something different about them. Maybe they sound like locusts. Maybe they look to a certain degree like locusts, but they're not literal locusts. They're supernatural creatures. Uh, we're told that they don't eat grass. That's literally all the locusts do. That's their job. They eat grass. So they're not locusts in a physical, literal sense. They're what we could call demonic locusts. They're, they're demons that either they're taking the shape or the form of a locust, which we're actually going to see in chapter 16, that the demons take the shape of frogs. So they can take different shapes. But they are these hellish creatures coming out of the abyss. They're not... Uh, as Hal Lindsey would say, they're not Cobra helicopters with stinger missiles. I don't think that that's here in the text. I, I think I know how he got that, and uh, well-intentioned. 
But I don't think that's the case here. And I think I can prove that to you. So then why are they called locusts if they're not locusts? What's the connection? Do they look like them? Maybe. Do they act like them? A little bit closer to the reality. Do they sound like them? Maybe, probably. But I think the reason why John sees these and identifies these demons as locusts is because of the devastation that they are going to bring. The devastation that they're going to bring. Real life locusts, real locust animal creatures, can travel in columns 100 feet deep and four miles in length. I don't know if you guys enjoy like uh, those, those documentaries uh, about nature and all those different like the Blue Planet and Planet Earth documentaries. There's an amazing episode on Planet Earth about locusts. It's incredible to see these tiny little creatures being amassed in this huge, it looks like smoke. It looks like smoke coming at you, this huge wall of locusts. There's swarms of locusts that can number in the tens of billions at one time in Africa and in Asia. They can cover more than 2,000 square miles of land, and once they begin destroying and devastating the crops, there's no stopping them. You can't go at them and catch them in a net or shoot them away. You can't get them to leave. Once they start their work, they will complete it. In 1866, over 200,000 people died as a result of a famine caused simply by locusts coming and eating the crops. And interestingly enough, the normal locust span of activity is between the months of May and September. So five months, which is exactly what we see here. These demon locusts are tormenting people for five months. I think that they are called locusts, maybe because they look like them, probably not. Maybe because they sound like them in all of their fury coming after these people, probably that's closer. But it's just their actions. It's the ways in which they act. They bring absolute devastation, and there's no stopping them, and there's no way you can get away from it. God said this would happen in Israel. In the eighth plague in Egypt, which was the plague of locusts, brought devastation. God said that once Israel had been delivered, if they refused to follow God, those same plagues that were visited on Egypt will be visited in Israel upon God's people. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 13 through 15. So God promised this is going to happen if you don't follow me. And these people clearly are not following God, these earth dwellers. Also, Joel, uh, you could just read through the book of Joel. It's very short, but Joel chapter 1 through 2, there's a locust plague that comes in. There's also armies that are described as looking like locusts. Jeremiah chapter 5, locust comes in after a trumpet blast, but no one repents. So if you know your Old Testament, you know the imagery of locusts, you know devastation, an enormous amount of people in an army or a physical, literal locust, you would know that what's being described here is a massive amount of something, which we know are demons, that are acting like locusts in bringing such devastation. In verse 3, it says that power is given to them. They don't have the power on their own, but they're given power. And the power is like scorpions of the earth. Now, think with me here. Why do scorpions have power? How do scorpions have power? They're not stronger than you and me. They're not richer than you and me. They're not more intelligent than you. 
Why do they have power? How do they have power? They really have power in two areas. They have fear over us, and they can cause us pain. They're tiny, they're small, but they have fear. That they bring about fear in our lives, and they can cause us massive pain. It's the same thing here. These demons have fear as their power and pain as their power. They're told, verse 4, not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree. So this is why some people would say that it's actual physical locusts that are being demon-possessed, maybe. But they're told not to eat the green grass, so I, I don't know if it's actual locusts. But only the men, who are they supposed to target? Only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Those who were sealed back in chapter 7 are safe. They're protected. Just like, remember, in Egypt, the Israelites were safe and protected from those uh, certain plagues that were coming uh, upon the Egyptians. They were not permitted to kill anyone. Again, allowance is given. They're not permitted to kill anyone, only to torment for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. The torment is so bad that in those days, men will seek death but won't be able to find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. They want to die, but they can't. The demons are not allowed to kill them. Nobody seems to really be doing what they want to do, right? The demons want to kill. The people want to die. The demons can't kill. The people can't die. It's just a whole lot of torment for everyone. Verse 7 gives us more details as to why I don't think it's physical, literal, animal kingdom locusts, but demons that are acting like a locust would act. Verse 7, the appearance. We're given nine features, and most of these features are given to us in Joel. They're taken from Joel. Again, if you know your Old Testament, you're going to know that these features come straight from Joel. The appearance of the locust was like horses prepared for battle. So horses. These are all uh, symbolism, imagery, it appears, right? The appearance of the locust was like Horses prepared for battle. So it's not the locusts were horses, but they look like horses. Horses prepared for battle. What does that mean? It means they're ready. They're eager. Just think about a horse that's about ready to run a race, right? Just chomping at the bit, right? We have that in our colloquialisms of speaking of somebody who's eager to do something. They're chomping at the bit. They just want to be let go and released so that they can do whatever they're told to do. That's these demons. They've been chomping at the bit in the abyss, in the bottomless pit, longing to be freed to do this exact work. Number two, on their heads appeared to be crowns like gold. So again, appeared to be, it's not that they're actually wearing crowns, but it looked like they had crowns that looked like they were gold. This is not the word for crown, that's the word diadem for a king, uh, rightful authority and leadership and power. This is the word for a conqueror, a victor in a, a sporting event. What does this tell us? It tells us that they are going to be successful in what they're doing. They, they're going to be given that winner's crown, that, that wreath in the winner's circle that's given because they're going to be successful. They're going to win at what they've been called to do. Number three, they have human faces. They had faces that were like the faces of men. Again, faces like the faces of men. We saw this with the cherubim, that the cherubim had faces like, there was one that had the face like the face of a man, looked like a man. What did that signify? It signified intelligence. That's why, again, these aren't locusts that are physical animal kingdom locusts. These are demons that have intelligence. They have human capabilities or created being capabilities like ours. They also have hair, verse 8. 
It was like the hair of a woman. It was woven together like the hair of a woman. It's long hair. It's flowing hair, which is a representation of vitality and strength. Think about uh, Absalom, who had long hair. Think about Samson, whose strength was in his hair. There's an aspect of strength here, that these demons are strong. They're powerful. They also have lion's teeth, verse 8. Their teeth were like the teeth of lions. That's not what locusts have. Locusts don't have lion's teeth. These are demon locusts that have lion's teeth. They're ravenous. They want to destroy everything in their path. They have a breastplate, verse 9, like the breastplates of iron. That's uh, their defensive mechanisms. They aren't vulnerable. That's speaking to their vulnerability. You cannot destroy them. You can't go after them and successfully attack them. In the middle of verse 9, they have a sound. The sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots of many horses rushing to battle. This might be why John says, man, they seem like locusts because this huge wall of demons flying at people just sounds like a bunch of locusts. There's an abundance of them, so many there that there's not even a tally of how many. It's just the sound of many horses and chariots rushing to battle. And they have tails, verse 10, like scorpions and stings. And in their tails is their power to hurt men. So again, a locust does not have power in their tail. It's in their mouth. And they don't have teeth like lions in their mouth. This is different. These demons are clearly different. And they are given power in their tails. This is the terror that they bring. It's like scorpions to sting, to destroy, to, to hurt, to harm, to torment, but not to kill. And they're given that power for five months. By the way, this is the only trumpet that has a time element attached to it. Five months. Why is there a time element attached to it? There's a number of reasons why, but I just want to remind you again of the mercy and kindness of our God. He says, don't kill anyone. Torment them such that oh, after five months, maybe some of them will repent. We're going to see that none of them do. And similar to the way that God spoke to Noah, Noah, my spirit will not strive with man continually. I'm done, but wait for 120 years, right? I'm done, but the flood's not happening today. It's going to happen in 120 years. So start building, start working, and I will give you 120 years to give mercy and grace to the people around you before judgment comes. Verse 11, they have a king over them. They have a king this is another reason why I believe clearly these aren't locusts because Proverbs 30 verse 27 specifically says locusts have no king over them. So these aren't real locusts. They're a demonic locust. And they have a king, the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in Greek he has the name Apollyon, which just means destruction or destroyer. Some people think that this is a high-ranking demon that has guard over the abyss. Some people think this is the devil himself. It could be either. And John writes, the first woe is past. Behold, two woes are coming after these things. The first woe is done. The, the first of these final three trumpets is done. This torment is done. So we've seen Satan is real. Now, demons are real. They've been led up out of this abyss to torment people. Demons are real. But the good news is that this chapter does not just say Satan is real and demons are real. 
I'm going to go back and just look at two final, just in conclusion, two final realities that are staggering in our understanding of who God is and in how safe we are in his hands. Satan is real, yes. Demons are real, yes. But number three, God is really sovereign. God is really sovereign. We've seen it all the way throughout this text. All of these, as we've said before in Greek, divine passes. The key was given. Permission was given. Verse 3, the locusts are given power. They have no authority and no power on their own. Unless God gives it to them, they have nothing. So yes, don't underestimate the devil. But don't overestimate the devil. He has no power other than that which God himself grants to him. He's entirely subject to the restraining hand of God. He has to be given a key. Remember Jesus, when he goes to get the scroll, he's not given the scroll, he takes the scroll. He owns that scroll. He has the right to that scroll. Satan has no rights. He's a creature. He's always a creature. Satan is more like you and me than he's like God. He's a creature. I think most of us, unfortunately, we think in terms of, of Star Wars, which that's not wrong. I won't fault you for that because best movie ever made. But, <laughs> but we think in terms of a dualistic world instead of a theocratic one. We think in terms of good versus evil, that there's this cosmic battle of light versus darkness, always fighting each other, and boy, we hope God wins. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says God reigns, he wins, he's won, it's over. The idea of this dualistic world of good versus evil, just it grants way too much power to the devil. He's always the creature, and he's always the servant of God. 1 Timothy chapter 1, Satan is used so that Hymenaeus and Alexander might be taught not to blaspheme. This is why Satan's angry all the time. Because Satan hates God and wants God to lose and wants to destroy all of you and me and send us to hell with the devil. And instead, God says, actually, I'm going to use you to bring somebody back to me. Satan's like, man, I can't win. There's nothing I can do to bring people to me and force them to go away from you. If God so chooses, God uses even the devil himself to bring people to repentance and faith in Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the devil's wickedness is used to bring an incestuous man to repentance. In the book of Job, Satan is used to bring glory to God. Just imagine Satan at the beginning of Job thinking, this is it, I finally won one. And at the end of Job, realizing forever that book is going to be stuck inside of the Bible, which will never go out of existence, and it's a book saying, God won. Satan, in all of his efforts that were so devastating upon Job, in all of his efforts, none of them worked. God won. So we have fallen in temptation of the devil, not only when we trust in his promises for satisfaction, but also when we overestimate his power. That's why we sing songs like, A mighty fortress is our God, the prince of darkness grim. We tremble not for him. Let's sing that with defiance the next time we sing that. We are not afraid of the devil. We tremble not for him. His rage we can't endure, for lo, his doom is sure. You're not making out of this alive, devil. We sang it a few weeks ago in This Is My Father's World. Though the wrong seem oft so strong, 
God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died will be satisfied. Devil's not going to win. So often we look at this world and we think maybe he might. Functionally, we look around, we think evil looks like it's winning. Looks like things are just going to keep getting worse. Maybe the devil is in control. It's like going to the zoo. You go to the zoo with your kids. I've been several times with my kids. One of the first times we saw a lion, my kids run up to that plexiglass. They look at the lion. They see it from far away. They're like, no, that's not even real. It's probably like some Pixar movie. And then the lion gets up and starts walking at them. And you can see them just kind of, whoa. Why don't you and I do that? When we're, staring, when we're staring at that lion, our face smushed up against that plexiglass, looking at the lion, why don't we back up when the lion starts walking to us? The kids are focused on the lion. We see the plexiglass, right? We know there's no way that this lion gets to me. So often we look at the devil and we only see him, but we don't see the plexiglass of God's sovereignty. God will not allow the devil to do anything that's outside of God's permission. Earl Palmer said it this way, evil always weighs less than it looks. Evil always weighs less than it looks. And I don't want to minimize evil. There is a lot of evil in this world. There are so many different atrocities that have happened, that are happening, and that will happen. But I believe the Bible would say that evil weighs less than it looks. Satan is not a threat to the sovereign king. He serves our sovereign king. He's captive to the lamb. Chapter by chapter, we see God being sovereign over so many aspects in the book of Revelation. And here in chapter 9, he's sovereign over the devil himself. Every time you come across the devil in the Bible, you see God sovereignly directing the devil. You see God sovereignly acting behind what the devil is doing. The devil incites David to take that census, and then in another parallel passage, it says that God's allowing that. God's the one who's doing that work. Adam and Eve in the garden, God is not far off wondering what's going on. God shows up and says, I'm going to bring judgment to the devil. He knows what's happening, and he has a plan right off the bat to fix it. Jesus is tempted by the devil in the wilderness because the Holy Spirit sends him there. Holy Spirit says, hey, you have a meeting with the devil. It's, it's in your iPhone calendar. It's on your schedule. Go meet him, and you'll win. There's no way the devil wins. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. That's why the Bible says you and I are, were called to resist the devil, because God is really sovereign. What a comfort it is to know that our greatest enemy's greatest strategy to hurt you is always under the control of our greatest friend's will. Our greatest enemy's greatest strategy to hurt you and me is always under the control of our greatest friend's will. Satan is on a leash, and God himself holds the other end. Therefore, this, this isn't a jailbreak. Chapter 9 of Revelation isn't a jailbreak. It's not the demons overpowering God and finally being able to go out and be free. No, this is the jailer letting them go. He will ultimately destroy them. Remember in the Old Testament, we saw this when we studied the book of Habakkuk. God says, I'm going to let Babylon go in. Babylon, I hate Babylon. They are uh, just an abomination to me, but I'm going to let them go in and be my judgment in my people, Israel. I'm going to let them judge. And then once they're gone, I'm going to judge Babylon. 
how sovereign is our God? He's this sovereign. He uses evil to punish evil. That's how sovereign our God is. He uses these demons who are evil to punish the evil earth dwellers. This is such a glorious reality. There's nothing outside of the scope of our God's control and sovereignty. And ultimately, the cross is the definition of this, right? The cross is the definition of God using evil to punish evil. Who was responsible for the death of Jesus? How would you answer that question? Who was responsible for the death of Jesus? Was it Judas in his greed? Was it the Jews, the religious leaders who were angry and envious of Jesus' popularity? Was it the Romans? Was it Pontius Pilate who just wanted to save his own neck? Who is responsible for the death of Jesus? Turn to Acts, Acts chapter 2. Peter has no problem with saying that God is sovereign over everything, including evil, and also has no problem saying the evil that we do is our responsibility for doing it. He has no problem bringing these two together. Man's responsibility, God's sovereignty. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, this is Peter preaching, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. God was the one who had this plan in mind. God made it happen. And in the very same breath, in the very same sentence, you nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men, and you put him to death. God did it, you did it. God did it, you did it. Turn just a couple chapters over in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verse 27. This is the disciples. Again, Peter speaking. He says, For truly in this city, this is Acts chapter 4, verse 27, In this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. They did it, but they only did what you allowed them to do. Now, a lot of people have a confusion with this, and I understand it. A lot of people think, I think because the starting point is that we believe that man is basically good, even though that's not what the Bible teaches, we believe that man desires good, and that God says, well, I need to use somebody's evil, so he just zaps us with an evil thought. We know that's completely unbiblical, right? James chapter 1 tells us that God doesn't tempt anybody. He can't be tempted himself. We know that it's not like Judas is saying, man, I love this Jesus guy. I think he's the Messiah. I want to follow him. I want to repent. I want to turn to him. And then all of a sudden, he just gets zapped by this feeling. I don't know why, but all of a sudden, I hate him. No. God just used the desires that were already in Judas's heart. Judas already hated Jesus. And so God says, fine, I can use that. God uses them as they are. And because of that, they will be held responsible. Look, if God acted all by himself and we had zero culpability in this, we had no responsibility whatsoever, we were just robotically moved by God, then ultimately we are not at fault. God is, and ultimately we should not be judged in hell. God should be. And since we know the Bible is abundantly clear that humans are sent to hell, not God, it is humans who are the ones who did the acting. 
who have the evil in their hearts, the evil intentions in their minds. They're not robots acting against their wills. And from the perspective of eternity, to answer the question, who killed Jesus? The one that was ultimately responsible for the death of Jesus was not Judas for greed, not Pilate for power, not the religious leaders for hatred or for anger. Standing behind all of it was God, because of love, acting to save you and me, using their evil to punish evil once and for all. Brothers and sisters, our God is really sovereign. He's really sovereign. You can trust him. You can have peace knowing that he is in control of everything. There are no maverick molecules in this world. He is in control of everything. And that leads to our final point, point number four. Not only is Satan real, not only are demons real, not only is God really sovereign, but because God is really sovereign, number four, our salvation is really secure. Our salvation is really secure. Back in Revelation chapter 9, those who had the seal of God on their foreheads are not going to be affected by the torment. They're not allowed. The demons are not allowed to, to touch those who were sealed. It's like the stamp on their forehead says, don't touch God's property, right? Don't get near it. Do not touch it. Maybe God says to the demons, devil demons in the weird shape of locusts and whatever you are, do your works, but you can't touch my people. Just imagine the pause in that sentence, right? Do your works. Yes, you can't touch my people. I mean, how frustrated must these demons be? They can't do anything that God does not allow them to do. E.M. Bound says it this way. No battle was ever planned by hell's most gifted strategists that could even begin to assail our faith. The chief general and all the minions of the devil can do a full frontal assault on our salvation, and they won't get anywhere. They won't. The same faith that the 144,000 had that enabled them to be sealed by God is the same faith that seals us, right? We're sealed with the Holy Spirit, not with a seal on our foreheads. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit. This is the faith that we have that seals us against the devil. This is why I believe the Bible is abundantly clear that believers can't be demon-possessed because the one who is in you, sealing you, is greater than the one outside of you in the world. No one can snatch you away from God's hand, Jesus says in John 10. 2 Timothy 2, 19, the Lord knows all who are his. They're safe in his hand. Philippians 1, 6, he who began the good work in you will bring it to completion. 1 Thessalonians 5, faithful is he who calls you and he will bring it to pass. Romans 8, there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not angels, not principalities, not demons, nothing, not even you. That's why we sing, no power of hell and no scheme of man can ever pluck me from God's hand. Satan is real. Demons are real. But God is really sovereign. And our salvation is really secure. How should that change our lives? That should not make us prideful or cocky in any way. That should make us hopeful and confident maybe with a similar mindset that Stonewall Jackson had during the Civil War, a general in the Civil War. 
who during skirmishes and battles would just walk around as bullets were whizzing past his head. As his own soldiers were running at breakneck pace, jumping behind any object that they could find, Stonewall Jackson would just walk right out in the open. seemed like nothing was wrong. There wasn't a battle going on around him. And one soldier asked him, how in the world can you be so calm? And he said, quote, my religious beliefs teach me that I cannot die one day before God is determined. I can't die one day before God's determined. Where God's determined, God's determined. And he will protect his own, he will keep his own, and he will bring you safe to glory. Do you believe that this morning? If you believe that this morning, then you can fight with everything you have, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And you can hope in Jesus Christ, who is your steadfast confidence and assurance, both now and on into eternity. Father, we thank you so much for your amazing grace and your kindness that reveals your sovereign control in our lives over the world, over the devil. We thank you so much for the hope and the, the confidence that we have because of Jesus. And I pray now as we respond in song, that you would be pleased to grow in our hearts, affections for Jesus, hope in him, assurance in his control, and a love for him that would be greater than anything in this world. We pray it in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Would you stand with us and sing?